0: If you've got a Bible, you can open up to the Book of Revelation. Uh, That would be the last book in the Bible. Book of Revelation. And if you would, please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first eight verses this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all that he saw. to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And it is amen. Okay. <laughs> Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the book of Revelation. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, it is a book that you want us to study and to understand, uh, and that ultimately, as we read right off the bat, the, the, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus, It is the revelation of Jesus, it's the unveiling of Jesus, and so I pray that in all we do as we study this wonderful book, uh, that it won't be about a man-centered perspective on anything, but instead it would be Jesus exalted and lifted high as the King of kings, as the firstborn from the dead, as the ruler of the kings of the earth, as the one who uh, always has been and always will be, and as the one who is coming back one day for his church. Thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, you can be seated. So, Revelation is probably one of the most neglected books in the Bible, okay? Uh, Preachers neglect it because, honestly, we're scared to death to preach the thing. Uh, I've had pastors tell me, you never preach past the first three chapters. After that, you stop. Uh, John Calvin who wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible, was too scared to write a commentary on Revelation. He stopped. He just didn't want to touch the thing. It's neglected because it's a complex, mysterious book. I mean, be honest. You've probably started reading it, and at times you went like beasts and and all kinds of weird numbers and signs, and, and I just don't get what's going on, and there's all these allusions to Old Testament prophecy, and so you just quit reading it. Another reason it's neglected is the strange fascination it holds with prophecy nuts. We all know the type, don't we? Always drawing tribulation timelines, finding the Antichrist identity in every politician that comes along. In my lifetime, it was Bill Clinton. I'll never forget when I got the email that, that talked about, uh, you know, the, the line in, in the book of I think it's Luke, where it says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky, and the guy was drawing the correlation going, well, that word's Barack, so it means Obama is the Antichrist, right? Like, I, I hear, you hear those things all the time. Or when I was a kid, it was, it was Saddam Hussein, he was the Antichrist, all the way up to Pope Frankie they want to find the identity of the Antichrist and all these crazy things. And so what happens is most people uh, uh, go between these two extremes. So either we find the book so hard to read that we never read it, or we find those who think they understand it so difficult to deal with that we don't want to be like them stockpiling food and building bunkers and running from everything, and that we never read it. And we just go, you know what? It doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back. I'm just going to stay away from all of that. And honestly, I've been there. I have. I have. That's probably why I've avoided the book for many years in my life as well until I read a book a few years back by a guy named Sam Storms, and the book changed all of that for me. And I I believe that there's not a better book for our church and for the church uh, as, as as a whole in 2021 than the book of Revelation, okay? So the book of Revelation, and really quickly, it's singular, Revelation, okay? So if you start saying Revelations, I'm correcting you. It's like back when we had Alco. It was Alco, not Alcos. Right? I remember that? Uh huh. Okay, it's Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John. This is the same Apostle who wrote the gospel that bears his name. It's the same Apostle who wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And at the time of this writing, John is probably an old man, probably in his 90s. And he's in exile on the island island of Patmos, working the mines. He has been sent there by the Roman government because of his faith in Christ. And there's a lot of debate on when the book was written. Some people say that that the book was written in the decade of around A.D. 60. So So that would be right before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Others believe that it was written around 95 A.D. during the reign of Emperor Domitian And after I've studied it, I believe that is probably the correct date, that it has a later date of around AD 95. The book's audience, as we will see, is the seven churches in Asia or modern-day Turkey, but the audience is all churches at all times throughout all of history. Revelation belongs to a literary genre known as apocalypse. Other books in the apocalypse genre include Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And there's a lot of definitions for apocalypse, but a very simple way to understand it is this is that apocalyptic literature is just an intensification of prophecy. Right? It's an intensification of prophecy. It's making prophecy bigger. And the theme of the book of Revelation is very simple: Jesus wins. That's the theme. Read a great story of some seminary students playing basketball one day, and they look over and they see the the janitor at their seminary reading outside. So they walk over, and you know, seminary students they know everything, even though they've never worked in a church, and you know, they're great people to be around. And uh, they walk over and they go, "Well, what are you reading, buddy?" You know, and he's like, "Well, the Book of Revelation." And one guy's like, "Oh, do you understand what you're reading, or what's your interpretation of it?" And the janitor just smiles at him and very simply says, "Yeah, Jesus is going to win." That's the thing right there. Sam Storms puts it this way. Revelation is in our Bibles to assure suffering Christians of all ages that God wins. Its focus is the unimpeachable, irresistible sovereignty of our great triune God and his determination to bring his people into everlasting joy in the new heavens and the new earth. Now if you think that Revelation is given to answer all your speculative questions about current events and when Jesus might return... You're going to be very disappointed in this series of sermons. I'm sorry. We were never meant to use the book of Revelation as a code book to decipher the events of the nightly news, ever. You were never meant to pick it up and go, oh my gosh, did you see what happened in the Middle East today? That's not why it was given to us. The book is designed to communicate that Jesus Christ is Lord in the church and he's Lord in the world. Now, when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation, there are three popular views, and we have to look at these very quickly, okay, so that you understand where we're coming from. So there's some that would advocate for what we call a preterist view, right? That word preterist is just a fancy way of saying a historical view. So those who advocate for this view contend that the book was written in 60 AD, all before the fall of Jerusalem, and that the whole book is talking about the events that will lead up to the destruction of the temple in the fall of Jerusalem. That is the preterist point of view. Some advocate for what is called a futurist perspective. And this is most, the most common view uh, that's been taught in churches. Right? Most of you have, have grown up hearing the futurist perspective. So some of you grew up watching Thief in the Night and all those scary movies back in the 70s, right, where people are getting their heads cut off, right, and they're taking the microchip of the beast and they're trying to scare everybody to death. Or you grew up, like I did, reading all the Left Behind series, which is fiction, by the way, it's fiction letting you know it's fiction. And this view says that virtually everything in Revelation chapter 6, 1 to chapter 19, 2 is concerned with what will happen in the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. So in other words, the judgments of God that come in the form of seven seals, trumpets, and bowls describe events that have not yet happened. So that is is the, the futurist perspective on the book of Revelation. The third view is the idealist view. The idealist view says the prophecies in this book are really not concerned with any specific period, event, or series of events in church history. Rather, they describe symbolically the conflict of good and evil throughout history and the principles through which God acts. My view and Joe's view most resembles the idealist view. But thanks to Sam Storms, we we also contain a mixture of other perspectives. So what I'm going to argue throughout the course of this book is that part of this book describes events that have already happened, it describes events that are currently happening, and it describes events that will happen one day in the future. Ultimately, listen, there are parts that nobody understands. Nobody. And as believers, we have to be humble enough to just go, I don't know. And so there will come areas where I'll just have to go, I, I don't know. And we've got to be humble enough to be okay with that. So as we study the book, as we, as we look at this, listen to me. You may be in a predator's camp. Most of you may be in a futurist camp. That's fine. And we may disagree, but hear me. We should not and we will not divide because no matter what camp you find yourself in, All three believe the same thing. And you know what that is? Jesus is going to win. And so that's where we're going to land, okay? So there's your background. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1. We'll look at the first three verses. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending the angel to his servant John. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time. Is near. So, revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation, it's Greek, it's apocalypsis, we get our word apocalypse from it. It just means unveiling or something to be revealed. So, it can describe a a sculpture that has a sheet over it that somebody pulls down at the unveiling so that you can see the sculpture. Or a beautiful building that has scaffolding all over it and they take the scaffolding off so that you can see the building. The book is not about history or the future, although it has those things in it. It talks about both of those things. It's supremely all about Jesus. John is telling you that it is the display of Jesus Christ, that what John wants you to see throughout the entirety of the book is Jesus. He wants you to look to him. And he says it's the testimony of what must soon take place. So this is where our our preterist friends think that most of the events have happened. Since it says soon, it must be talking about the events that are concerning the fall of Jerusalem. Others will point to 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 that says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And that may be true as well. I tend to agree with G.K. Beale, who says the words quickly or soon are almost a near substitute for Daniel's phrase in the latter days found in Daniel chapter 2 verse 28 in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So, So what Daniel refers to when he talks about the latter days is a time when we will see the defeat of cosmic evil and the ushering in of the divine kingdom. Beale says, what Daniel expected to occur in the last days, John is announcing as imminent or beginning right now. So what John is saying is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in my lifetime. Jesus has came. He's brought the kingdom with him and the defeat of evil has already begun and we're waiting for the consummation of that kingdom. I've used this example before, but you have to look at it as World War II, it's D-Day. When the Allied troops land on Normandy, the war's over, folks. By that point, it's done. Now, we still had several bloody battles to get to until we got to V-Day, and we officially declared it over, but the war was, was over. It was won at that point. This is what John's saying, is that with Jesus, the war's over. We're just waiting for V-Day. We're waiting for the consummation of all things. One pastor put it this way, he says, The key is turned in the ignition. The engine of God's triumph is already taking over. The last days began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and they will not conclude until his final return. It's all about Jesus. He's already started to bring all things to the end. And then we see the chain of command that's given there, right? Right? That it was given uh, from God to Christ, to his angel, to John, who then gave it to his servants. That phrase, servants, refers to the community of faith as, as a whole. So that, that's all of us. That this book is being given to us as believers. And then in verse 1, it says um, that he's made it known. To show his servants the thing that must soon take place, he has made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. If you want, you can underline that phrase, made it known. In the Greek, it's, it's a word, semeno, is what it means, is what it is. And that word semeno, it literally means to communicate by means of symbols and signs. So, so we are being told right off the bat in the book of Revelation that this book contains symbols and signs and figurative language, and we must interpret the book accordingly. Sam Storms puts it this way, everything in Revelation is true. Everything is true. It's rarely literal. It is most often truth communicated through vivid images and pictorial symbols. All right, And we'll look at this more as the book unfolds, but a lot of times what people say is like, oh, well, now you're not not taking the Bible literally, Byron, if you're going to tell me there's metaphor and there's symbols and all these things in it. Well, no, I am taking it literally. But we communicate in metaphor all the time, don't we? I mean if I told you that Joe and I locked horns this week, it's not like Joe and I grew horns and then squared off in here and went ah and just, you know, butted heads. That's not what happened. It means maybe we had an argument, but I'm using a metaphor to get that point across. And this is exactly what John does throughout the book of Revelation. And then John says this. He says the one who takes, he says blessed is the one that takes the words of this prophecy to heart that he will be blessed. So that means this book is not meant to provide fodder for wild end times theories, but instead <laughs> it's a book of commands addressed to the present day lives of all who read it. See, prophecy in the Old Testament had two purposes, foretelling the future or foretelling future events and then forthtelling the truth of current events. And Revelation is going to maintain both of those features. So those who read and keep these words or obey it, they will be blessed. So in other words, he's saying, hey, this book's here so that you can read it and understand it and obey it. So in other words, it's no different than any other book of the Bible. It's a word from God calling for an obedient response in believers' lives. That's what it is. So often we separate it out from the rest of the Bible, and we kind of put it over here on its own, and we don't understand that, no, it's just a part of the Bible, and it's meant to be understood and obeyed. Verse 4, John says, To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who, were before, who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So from John to the seven churches. Now, these are seven literal churches that existed in what is modern day Turkey and the order they're follows the most natural path that the male would run. So you would enter at the port city of Ephesus, and then you would go around in a circular route. But John's choice of the number seven is no accident. Seven, as we're going to find out, is the favorite number of Revelation. Basically, it signifies completion or fullness, So these seven churches are meant to be represented of all churches active on the earth at the time of the writing, all churches that are active throughout history, and all churches that are active on the earth right now. At the conclusion of every letter to every church, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. And then John begins with a traditional greeting, grace and peace to you, but this greeting doesn't come from John. Notice what he says. Grace and peace to you um, from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's saying grace and peace to you from God Himself. It first comes from the one who is and who was and who is to come. That runs parallel to Exodus 3.14 where God tells Moses his name and he says, I am who I am. Or literally, I be who I be. I've always existed. I've always been there. I will always be. And as we're going to see, these Christians will need grace to persevere in the faith in the midst of suffering and tribulation. And especially, listen, this is why it's so important, the pressure to compromise their faith in coming years. They need a peace that only God, who has always been, can provide. See, what he's saying is that this is all there to motivate you and I to obedience. The threefold clause is, was, and is to come means that God is not just present at the beginning, middle, and end of history, but he's the sovereign Lord over all of history, and he's able to bring prophecy to fulfillment and to deliver his people from overwhelming odds. So whether that's Egypt or Babylon or Rome or some other nation, that God is in heaven guiding all of the human affairs, that that's our God, that's who we worship, And what that should do to you and I, even in 2021, should instill courage in us to stand strong and stand up in the face of whatever comes our way. That's a good word, brothers and sisters. But then he says the greeting castle comes from the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne. Now, seven times in the book of Revelation, we will read of the seven spirits. There are not seven Holy Spirits, okay? Remember, seven means completion or fullness, So the seven spirits are just a way of saying the fullness or the totality of perfected completeness of God. It's telling us that the Holy Spirit that God sent to us on the day of Pentecost is alive and he's active in the world today. And then finally, look at it says. The greeting comes from who? From Jesus. From the faithful witness. It's a reference to Psalm 89. You can go read it. Where Jesus is called a faithful witness and the firstborn and the ruler of kings. So Jesus was faithful in his witness to his Father. He spoke truthfully of who God was and why he came into the world. In other words, look at this. Jesus never lies. Jesus always tells the truth. He's the firstborn from the dead. means he was the first to be raised from the dead, but he's not the last. The fact that he was raised is God's assurance to us that we who are in Christ by faith will one day receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. All right? And third, listen to me, I love this part. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So I think what we all need to do is just stop and just go, he's in charge of all rulers. So whether that's Putin of Russia or Xi Jinping of China or even, I know it's hard for some of us to believe, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the Democratic Party. he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Proverbs twenty-one-one. Jay read it to open our service. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. If you remember in the Old Testament, when it was God's purpose to bring home the children of Israel from Babylon, what did he do? He stirred up the heart of an unbelieving pagan king named Cyrus, and Cyrus sent the children of Israel home. We'll see this play out in chapter 17 of Revelation, when God will use the kings of the earth and even leaders of corrupt religious systems to accomplish his purposes. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, we read, For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and uh, and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So let me just simplify what he's saying right here by being ruler of the kings of the earth. Don't be afraid, Christian. That's what he means. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to worry about. He's a ruler of the kings of the earth. I was sitting in my office watching everything uh, Wednesday. I was watching Fox News, and there was a reporter that was in the melee of all the, the craziness down there. And as he's walking away, he gets surrounded by this mob of people, right? And they're cursing at him and saying, Fake news! and yelling all kinds of stuff at him. Um, But what broke my heart is there's this one lady back behind this reporter screaming at him, and she's holding up a sign. And I saw multiple signs like this this at this whatever it was. Jesus 2020. And I was just brokenhearted going, man, if you really believe that sign, you shouldn't have even been there. Your God has it all under control, so why are you screaming and spitting and acting a fool on national TV while holding up a sign with your Savior's name on it? Don't be afraid, Christian. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, so listen to me. Everything that leaders do Even the dark deeds that are done in secrecy in the darkest corners of this earth are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are unwittingly doing his will. See, in the last several years, we've seen Christians slaughtered in Egypt. We've seen racial strife continue to plague our country. The political gap is just widening. You have threats by Iran and China advancing at an alarming rate. And when we look at all that, we go, oh, the world is out of control. But it's not. It's not. See, John's speaking words of encouragement to these churches in Asia Minor who are facing their own form of persecution and political turmoil. See, they're on the verge of being forced to worship the emperor and the government or die. And John's trying to encourage them. He's saying Jesus Christ is alive from the dead and he's seated at the Father's right hand. He's reigning, he's ruling, he's exercising absolute control and sovereignty over all the kings of the earth and over all events and nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. Now he doesn't approve of the things these leaders do, but in his sovereignty he overrules their sinful acts and makes them part of his plan for history. He does this sometimes by restraining them from doing evil, sometimes by frustrating their plans, sometimes by ordering events so they might serve his purposes. Ultimately, I don't know. I just have to echo Paul's words in Romans 11.33 where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And then if you look at the back half of verse 5, John's thinking about just Jesus Christ, this faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth. And then John can't help himself, and John begins to sing. And he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So notice what he says, and and I want you to underline this at the back half of verse 5. To him who loves us. Notice the present tense in what he's saying. To him who loves us. This is the only time in the New Testament where God's love for you and I is in the present tense. The only place you'll find it. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, it always talks about how he loved us, but it never talks about how he loves us presently. So right here, John is saying he loves us. So you see his encouragement to you and I? That that no matter how hard things are for you, no matter your situation in life, Jesus always has and always will love us. So no matter what we face, he has our best interest in view. He loves us. And then John shows us exactly how he loves us, how he demonstrated his love for us is that he has freed us from our sins By his blood. Sam Storm says that we see two motifs joined. So so the love of Jesus is the the motive, uh, is is his motive, right? And his voluntary expression of that love is the action. It's freeing us from our sins, right? This is Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So no matter where you're at in your life today, whether you're suffering sickness, relationship loss, marital troubles, financial difficulties, and you're sitting there going, hey, does God love me? Does he hear me? Does he care about you? John's saying, yes, he loves you. And you can know he loves you by turning your eyes to the concrete reality of Jesus on the cross for you, shedding his blood and setting you free. It also means that the guilt of our sin that exposes us to divine justice and wrath has been forever removed. So we're free from the guilt that puts our souls in jeopardy. We aren't liberated because we're awesome, thank goodness. We're not liberated because we deserved it. Our sentence was imputed to Jesus. He took it from us. His blood is what cleanses us from the stain of sin. And notice this, that he didn't just save you to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not why. He saved you in order to make us a kingdom of priests. We just finished Exodus, and if you remember, right before the children of Israel gather around Mount Sinai, God says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. But when you read Revelation, notice the change of tense. In Exodus 19, you shall be to me. But in Revelation, it says you are a kingdom of priests. So what was prophesied in Exodus was never fulfilled, but John is saying it's been accomplished. That Jesus accomplished it. He's made us a kingdom of priests. So because of Christ's priestly work for us, the church now exercises its role as priest by maintaining a faithful witness to the world. And one of the ways that we do that is our willingness to suffer for the name of Christ. And John says, it's to this Jesus who loves us, who freed us by his blood, who's made us a kingdom of priests, that we ascribe glory and dominion forever and ever. And in verse 7, he says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 7 is a combination of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah 12:10. And John saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. His coming. In, in he's coming, right? So this alludes to a process. Jesus' coming is a process that's occurring throughout history that we're speeding towards right now. And that Christ's sexual, second coming is actually his final coming concluding all of history. Now we don't know for certain about the nature of the wailing of the peoples. Now we don't know if this is the wailing of repentance as they realize the truth about the one they've rejected and they turn to him in saving faith or maybe it's the wailing of their pain and anguish as they suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. It could be both. We're not sure. But he concludes by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. What Jesus is saying is, I am the origin and I am the goal of all of history. And he reminds them one more time that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but that is purposely out of order. Have you ever caught, caught that? Because you would think it would say he was and is and is to come. But instead, he, he goes present tense. He, he's the one who is and who was and who is to come. See, John's trying to show them that God is ruling over the beginning and end of history. But listen, he's also ruling presently. Right now, he's ruling He's present with you and I right now as I'm preaching. And the title, the Lord God, the Almighty, will occur seven times throughout the book, and it's pointing to God's actual providential oversight of all things. See, this is meant to reassure Christians in the first century and every century up through our present time that God is in absolute control of everything. So don't be deceived by claims that we've lost or that good has been defeated, right? The Lord God Almighty has everything in hand, and you and I may not understand what he's doing. We may not understand why he allows what he does, but rest assured, Christian, that nothing is outside of his control. Sam Storms puts it this way. Simply put, with these words, Jesus stakes his claim on every millisecond of human history from the time of creation to the final consummation. He's the Lord over history. He's sovereign over all nations and their armies and over all peoples and their hearts and over all of nature and a multitude of species. So brothers and sisters, today, could you rest in that? God has not relinquished control the election's finally over. Thank you. It didn't go the way we wanted. I get it. It didn't. But are you still able to say it's okay? God's in control of Biden. God's in control of Harris. God's in control of the Democratic Party. God's in control of the Republican Party. God is in control of everything. Are you willing to say that even if the America you know and love is gone, that you can still worship the one who is and was and is to come. See, remember, this book's being written to Christians who needed strength to endure persecution and marginalization. Both things that you will experience in the very near future, I'm afraid. So maybe the reminder you need today is that Jesus, through His blood, has made us a kingdom of priests. And the way that we best serve Him in the coming years is by suffering for the sake of our King Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, would you trust in him? He's coming back. The curtain is going to drop on history. We are speeding towards that day. And those who have not trusted in him will spend eternity separated from him in a real place called hell. So I plead with you today to look to Jesus the faithful witness risen from the dead, reigning over the world, the one who loved us and freed us from our sins and has made us a kingdom of priests, to God be the glory. Would you trust in him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the book of Revelation. I thank you that it's in our Bibles and I thank you that it's there to reassure Christians throughout all ages that you're in control of everything. So I just pray today that As believers, we would, one, repent of our lack of belief in that, and that that we would then turn back and trust you and rest in the fact that nothing has slipped past you. I thank you for that. Father, maybe there was just somebody in here today that just needed to hear that you love them. I thank you for that simple truth that you love us. And so today I pray that they could rest in the fact that that you have not forgotten them and that you care for them and that you've proven that by shedding your blood on the cross, by dying for them, by rising again, and by making them a part of your kingdom. So, So today could they rest in that? And then finally, anyone in here that doesn't know you, as the gospel was preached, I pray that you open hearts And that you saved today in this room and that they would not leave until they grabbed me or Joe or maybe a friend and just say, Hey, I didn't know Jesus when I came in here, but today he's saved me and he's changed me. And that we could rejoice in that today. Thank you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.